out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week is going to be the turn of the guitarist. It is going to be Dave Wolfenden, who was in Red Lorry, Yellow Lorry, and also uh, played with the likes of The Mission. So, um, yes, this is the interview. Just a big, bit of a word up. Um, sometimes the quality and reception went and there was one time when his um, equipment it just ran out of power he the uh, he needed a extension lead with um, I don't know electricity anyway look that's rather boring but there are moments where it gets a bit strange and I've tried to edit them out but uh, I did my best anyway look after several minutes of casual chat or quite a lot we got down to the exciting subject in the world that was music or is music of whether it's uh, full-time part-time what's best Dave Tell us more. I think it's actually more fun when you don't have to do it as a job because when you're doing it as a job, you forever, you know, it's kind of like, um, you know, but this whole premise of a band is like, so you join with these three other people that you know absolutely nothing about. And the only thing that you've got in common is your passion which is good, but unlike a marriage, you can't get divorced, and if you have a row, you can't fuck each other to make up. (laughs) So you just end up carrying the years and years of resentment, and um, and then when you do a good gig, you all look at each other and say, well, we were brothers anyway. I didn't really really mean to call you an arrogant wanker, you know what I mean? So... And, and you shouldn't you shouldn't really pick people to spend so much time with that you know nothing about. It's, it seems it just seems wrong, you know. But but you, so you, and sadly there is no rule book, and I think that's why you know rock has does does have such a good. Um, there's a lot of mythology around rock and everyone's got great stories and, and that's why, you know, Spinal Tap's great and that's why Anvil, you know, the history of Anvil is great and, you know, I've watched loads of documentaries and you never get bored of the stories because it's unlike any other life and, and being put in these situations is unlike anything else and you're completely fueled by an irrational desire to get your dopamine going for 45 minutes every night, and then you're knackered, then you get pissed, then you've got a hangover, then you do it tomorrow, you sweat it out, repeat, recycle, and you just keep going, which is fine when you're young, but when you get older, you know, you kind of can't do it as much. No, that's true. Well, I, I must admit, on that front, I love the Fleetwood Mac story, both the 60s yeah, one and yeah. the 70s, because because that's just one of those, you know, I you have that's to... A good, that's a really good one. You know, they, they but, set the bar so high, you know, yeah, and it's just like... Yeah. And, the, and the music they created out of that hell yeah. was and drug-fueled hell. Um, it's, yeah. It's, it's, it's exquisite. I mean, anyone calls it soft pop, and it's like, well, I suppose it is, but, God, the resentment... Yeah. The resentment, yeah. hatred yeah. towards each other, yeah. and and yeah. you know, it's amazing. You know that is, um, and then you got the Peter Green story, and then you had, you know, guitarists going mad, or one guy who went to the shops, never came back, and joined joined. I think it was the, something like the Children of God, and another one who 
was shagging the drummer's <laughs> wife and then he had to go and then he, you know it was all a bit like yeah. oh, how did you cope man you know it, 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 is, it is amazing the amount of shit you will put with to get the dopamine going it really it really really is but also in a way there is nothing there is nothing like it you know there is there is nothing else like it and 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 this is why we're still doing it and this is why most of my friends my age are still doing it because you know we like creating we like um we like being in orbit you know we like we we, we kind of are space cadets and we don't really live in the real world but you know, the thing about having a job is it does kind of ground you and and give you some kind of equilibrium and think I, I, you know i don't have to be an arsehole i mean when I played with the mission, the, the mission were huge. And they, they really thought they were going to be the next U2 or the cure. And um, I spent a year on tour with them. And I was on tour for a year, which, you know, sounds great. And, and, and you know, and it were posh hotels and a tour bus and pretty much everything you could imagine. Um, but, it, you know, that's why sort of, Spinal tap is funny. I mean, Ruth Ruth Polsky, she took us to New York originally, and she took most bands from England to America for the first time. Um, she was involved with the Joy Division stuff and the New Order, and she took she took the psychedelic first to America. And she she told me that she took the undertones the first time the undertones went to america and she invited everyone round to her flat for a meal and she said and these like sweet boys who were about 16 years old she said we went out for a walk on the streets in new york she said and fergal shark he had his parker hood up because he was too scared to take it off <laughs> And she took um, Hanoi Rocks to see Spinal Tap, and they didn't laugh at all through the whole thing. And and she says, "Yeah, you know, do, do you guys not think it's funny this?" And and they said, "Well, this is what happens. Why is it funny? Which <laughs> is even more disturbing." <laughs> Yes, this is true. So with the, just briefly on the mission, did you, was this the, when you had like, obviously Wayne, but was it with Andy Cousins on bass? No, no, it would be for, um, I, I got asked, because I, I knew Craig from way back in the day with the ex-Belairs and Andrew, you know, we were all part of the F-Club scene in Leeds. And um, so Craig went to join the sisters and then I played with the Lorries for years. And then that finished, and um, Wayne wanted to not play guitar, so I went on the tour and were learning the songs, learning his guitar parts, with an idea that he could put his guitar down and just, I don't know, climb up the PA or some kind of thing that he wanted to. I don't know, you know, I don't know. It seemed, at least you feel safe behind a guitar in a bit of smoke. He's not that vulnerable. And... Um, so anyway, we we set off and on the second gig in, in Canada, um, they had a massive fight and he just checked out of the hotel and he were gone. 
and and we were on tour with the Wonder stuff, and it had, it were all you know it were fairly big venues, and so we didn't have a show that day. We had a show the next day, so I said, well, look, I know how the songs go. I'll try and learn as many of these guitar parts in a day as I could. So we did the show the next day, and that's how I ended up um, doing Simon's job. Right, bloody hell, that's quite drastic, actually, because I know that. Um... Yeah, Wayne. I've, I've I've done an interview with Wayne, and also done an interview with the bassist Andy Cousin, and probably yeah. a guitar, and a guitarist as well, who seemed to sort of float towards anything that was gothic. Kind of, I can't remember his name's Mark. Somebody now. Mark Gemini Sway. That's it. Yeah, I know we use. I know all of that. I've never met Andy Cousins, but he messaged me a while ago. Um, to be honest. The goth thing is really, really weird, and it and it sounds incredibly churlish when to criticise something that's enabled you to go around the world and have a great time. Um, you know, because I mean, really, we were just punks, and um, the lorries really just wanted to be like the MC5. We just wanted to be a, a rock and roll band. But we used a drum machine and a drummer and everyone thought we were a goth band and it was fairly good to us, as it was fairly good to the mission. Yes. You know, um, and you know, and we had a good time for years and years, had a reasonable lifestyle. And um and then at some point, you know, the mission and, and also the lorries to a certain extent, you kind of begin to resent this because you sort of think, well, hang on a minute. This in it's a punk band, yeah. So why is everyone coming in bloody cobwebs, waving rubber bats round on sticks? But then again, you can't say to these people, actually, this thing that you think is great is nothing like you imagine it to be. Um, I mean, <clears throat> with a mission, we we did a tour. This is how bizarre. This is how bizarre it is. We did a show in America and pulled up with a bus and we had a security guard and all this bollocks, you know, and, and this woman, this was the middle of summer in, in, in California and a woman broke free and she grabbed Wade and she was wearing a, a wedding dress and grabbed him and, and wouldn't let go of him and she said, we were married in another life. And you're thinking, fuck me, these people this actually think that this is real. Excellent. Yeah. Yes. You know, you just you just can't get your head around it because all you're doing is making a, a racket. Yes. <laughs> but then but then when you see bands like All About Eve and and that period of the back. Was it the Batcave with Alien Sex Fiend? Yeah. When, when all those kind of like the bar, you know, like Bauhaus. I mean, there is yeah. this kind of, there is a look, isn't there? Everyone is looking slightly, and, and the cult and the and the cure. Yeah. You know, I mean, it, it does kind of lend itself. They weren't indie pop like the Smiths. They were very much like, with this kind of dark and moody one, and they start having mystical, oh. slightly mystical songs, a bit like Yes, or, you know, one of those bands. Yeah you know, and start talking about gardens and flowing hair, like all about Eve. Yeah. It's, it's kind of easy for, I can imagine that mystical side, you know, Wayne has that mystical character, doesn't he, until he talks about football. Oh, I don't. It, it's really, really funny because, you know, all the people that, that you mention, 
if you asked them if they were a goth band, they would say, no, we're not. They would say, we're a post-punk band. It's this kind of so affectation or a label that, that you know, you know. I mean, I've always been a massive fan of Killing Joke, and Killing Joke had, had, were never a goth band, and, and 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 the Banshees never were. They were just, and I don't think Bauhaus were. I just think they were tremendously original, tremendously creative, and they kind of wore black clothes a bit like the Sisters, you know. I, I, I just think that, I don't think it was contrived at all, but then. Everyone thought it was a movement, and then because they thought that, it became that. Yes. So, look, what about your? Because, because, um, what was your formative years? Because I'm, you know, like I said, confessed at the beginning, I'm in my mid fifties now, almost late fifties. So, no, 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 it's fine. It was, it was the, you know, I suppose it was the glam period of the early seventies that sort of caught my imagination. And thankfully, David Bowie was my first single and my first love. What was your kind of moment that music started to? encompass your life well when i was a when i was a kid i'm sorry i'm just rolling a cigarette my my earliest recollection me bro, my brother who's sadly deceased now was a teddy boy and so he had all the clothes and the draped jackets and you know the brothel creepers and a really really stylish really stylish big brother and um, you know like a lot of people we had a little mono dancette valve record player and he had things like chuck berry and little richard um and as a kid i just thought this box in the corner is amazing you know it's kind of like uh, i don't know like the, the vibration of, the, of this thing you know seem to possess a tremendous amount of weird energy yes. that made that made you feel good, although as a child you don't have a, really have a vocabulary to describe that. Um, so I got into it because my brother was a, a teddy boy, and then two of the first singles that I... This is, this is really, really interesting, and then... And, and, I've shared this story with Gerard, who I still play guitar with. Um, the two first records I bought were You Really Got Me by The Kinks and uh, Spirit in the Sky by Norman Greenbaum. Oh, and I also bought Satisfaction. And Gerard said, they, you know, obviously they're like really important records looking back now, although at the time he just thought this makes a great noise. And the three of the records that have got the most distinctive and iconic fuzz guitar sounds ever, you know, these records kind of created, created the fuzz sound, particularly with the kinks with... Uh, Dave Davis, he slashed his speaker comb with a razor to get, because the fuzz box didn't exist then, so he cut the speaker with a razor. Um, Keith Richards, that was one of the first records with a fuzz face on, a, a proper, I think it was a 60s fuzz box called a fuzz face. And uh, Spirit in the Sky has just got... In, you know, real a real sonic architecture to it that you know is is kind of fairly transcendent. You know, kind of does suggest a spirit 
with the guitar sounds sailing into the stratosphere, you know, fabulous records. Yes. So were you kind of becoming quite aware of that whole kind of 60s movement? Because obviously you're slightly older than me. So you would have sort of picked up that last period of the 60s when it was still peace, love and understanding before Charles Manson sort of started killing people. And and Woodstock happened and then the party got a bit sour. You never Um, want to be Well, I think sort of, you know, when I was about, so anyway, we, you know, I carried on, you know, buying records and things like that. Um, I, I don't think we would, you know, I was too young to think that there's a political dimension to this or it's because of the Vietnam War. I was too young for that. So I didn't tie those things in. Um it would be it would it would purely from a kind of musical thing that I liked it um, and I think it were only later when you become a teenager and you start paying attention to the news that you're aware that there's something going on in Vietnam, but you don't know what it is, and a lot of Americans don't agree with it um, yes. uh, and and then I think it was um you know, seeing Woodstock when I was about 15, seeing them next to the Star Spangled. So when the 70s came around and we had that kind of glam period and obviously people were getting very excited because there was that whole wave of, you know, foot mm-hmm. tapping and, 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 you know, I don't know, just yeah. thumping sort of music. Was there sort of, was that some, a scene that you were getting in, excited about? And I just also wondered when you started to pick up a musical instrument and started thinking, this could be it. I'm not going to just uh, go and pick. Do you mean like things like Slade and Sweet and T-Rex? And Gary Glitter and David Yeah. Um, to be honest, we were... We would do, we would have laughed at that, but with hindsight, everyone knows that that were a pretty, pretty remarkable time for songwriting, and and um, you know bands like Slade and Sweet were great. You know the economical pop songs, really well written, really well produced uh, pop music. But sadly, we were listening. To Black Sabbath and Led Zeppelin and Deep Purple, that's that's kind of so we kind of looked down. We used to call these people teeny boppers. Yes, teeny um, boppers. Yeah. So did I mean? So with your music, you didn't because my brother's seven years older and he was he loved Deep Purple, Black Sabbath, but he also loved Yes, Genesis, Wishbone Ash, Buck, James Harvest. Did you get into the prog world at all? No, it would it would kind of. Sabbath and Zeppelin. Uh, that, that's kind of that's kind of what what me and my pals were into, you know, my peer group. You know, we were kind of, uh, yeah, I guess you, we were kind of rockers. You know, it was it's like Zeppelin, really, Sabbath, yes. and you know, stuff like high energy. But and we we we, we didn't really like pop music. It, it had got to be riffy and it had got to be heavy and it had to be 15 minutes long and so there were those were all the kind of gigs that we went to see yeah um, uh, and so i started going in 1971 um you know i saw pink floyd for 60 pence at leeds town hall Bloody hell. 
Um, so I was a big fan of Mott the Hoople as well. Um, um, and, you know, people are kind of putting the, the, the gig experiences on Facebook now. And we were lucky enough to see David Bowie and the Spiders in Bradford. And, and that was the best concert I've ever seen. Incredible. God, that was with, uh, obviously that was with Woody Woodmansey, Trevor Boulder and Mick Ronson. Yeah, Mick, uh, Ron Mick Ronson is just, he, he, he is just a god really, isn't he? He's just really tasteful guitar player, not too many notes, full of, full of feeling. Like, I think, I think, yes, because I know, because I was a bit obsessed with David Bowie and um, to be honest, he always said that you know he was looking for the lead guitarist. He he wanted his Jeff Beck, and it was kind yeah. of really, it was kind of yeah. then he found Rono, and that was kind of was truly brilliant guitar player. Yes. So um, you, I was just going to say, so when did you start to think you know I might go and try and play an instrument? Well, um, we, we I did have a guitar, but no one told me what to do. So I had this summer job while I was waiting to go to university and I met someone who said, oh, I play the drums. Um, I said, oh, I've got a guitar, but I don't know what to do with it. So he said, look, I'll show you how to play some chords and you can join our band. So I thought, oh, that sounds quite hard. But I managed to do it, and I did it every day for a month. And, and at the end of a month, I could play Ramon's type guitars, just sliding two chords around. And he said, that's really, really good. Uh, but sadly, we found another guitar player. So I just carried on playing um, for me. And then I met, I met Gerard at college, who, who was a big Hendrix fan. and. I told him, you know, we were about 19, and um, I said, oh, I've got a guitar. He says, will you show me what to do? So I said, yeah. So I showed him what to do, and we kind of learned to play by trying to copy Kiss and Thin Lizzy Records and ACDC by putting the needle on the record and trying to cop what they were doing. And we did sort of manage to play these songs in a fairly unfisted kind of way and write these stupid songs. But this was round about the time that punk was happening. So we, we just learned to play and then the Sex Pistols played at Leeds Poly. And out of the whole tour, there was only Leeds and Derby that survived. And we saw the Sex Pistols, the Clash, the Damned, and Johnny Thunders for one pound twenty-five, mm. and that was it. And we we watched what they were doing, and we knew that we could do that. We could understand what they were playing because we could do it. <clears throat> and we thought, you know, this, this is great because there's an economy about it. There's brevity. It, politically, it's, it's very astute, you know, there's a kind of sociological dimension to it. Let's do it. So we write, started writing silly punk songs. So in a way, that was a really good catalyst, but we knew that we could do that. What were a lot more significant was when we went to see the Banshees, and we saw the Banshees at Leeds Poly, and... We just could not understand what John Mackay were doing. 
it was, you know, to me, he's the man who single-handedly invented post-punk. We just did not have a clue what he was doing. So then our next thing was to try and figure out how you play guitar like John Mackay. Right. And that right. was a pretty good grounding for, for um, post-punk guitar playing, which is how I got into it, trying to play like the Banshees. So that's how I started. And where did you go to university? In Leeds. Right, so you were right there in it. So then did you, well, what was the, so before you joined the Lorries, did you play in, did you sort of form a sort of punk band? Yeah. Uh, Gerard and I had a punk band, but then Craig, who was, ended up joining the Sisters, the F Club had started by then. And so, I started going to the F Club and I met Craig um, and then I met Grape and I met all the Leeds punks and we formed the Expellers. Yes, because Leeds, Leeds had quite a big anarcho-punk anarchist scene, didn't they? I remember sort of various friends who lived in Leeds during that kind of period in the 80s who were, um, you know, a lot of people who were really into people like Chumbawamba and then there's yeah. another band called Girls at Our Best who were also from Leeds. Actually, I used to be there, Roadie. <laughs> yes, who did that, that great song like called the... Getting Nowhere yeah. Fast. Yeah, they, they, were, they were friends of mine and, and my friend was drumming and I got asked to go on tour with them and be their Roadie. Um, so my first proper tour was roadieing for girls at our best. Well, that's um, a, that's, that's that's quite something because they they did a couple of fantastic singles, including they were great. getting nowhere fast, and then they did um, politics and uh, mm. warm gun as well. So by then, I suppose yeah. So that was where you know John Peel was becoming incredibly influential, wasn't he? Because obviously John what, Peel was yeah. That that was it, and and round about that time. We'd got a stable lineup with the Expellers, so we went to a recording studio, and it was the same recording studio that had recorded the Brighouse and Rastrick Brass Band um, in Heckmondwijk, and and so we did a demo there, and um, we could we just, you know to me that was like that was like going to Wonderland. You know, I thought, I can actually hear what everyone's doing. It actually sounds okay. Right. So we, we got a cassette and we sent one to John Peel and John Peel really liked it. And we got offered a John Peel session. And then we sent one, we gave, actually gave one to Bill Drummond, who was in Liverpool and he formed Zoo Records with David Balfe. And they had the bunny men and the teardrop explodes, and they liked our little demo, so they gave us a single deal. So we we got a John Peel session, and we got a um, a single out, and and so you know there was a kind of little bit of momentum there. Yeah, absolutely, because actually there, because there was that whole scene in Liverpool, weren't there? Eric's, where they had yeah. uh, Jane yeah. Casey and Big in Japan, yeah, one of those yeah. bands. So um, that everybody was in. So you must yeah. have felt a wave of enthusiasm. This did you manage to finish your degree, by the way? No. So it's close. No, um, I, no, no I, I couldn't do it. Not not after seeing the Sex Pistols, I thought this is what I want to do. So 
at that time you could sign on and <laughs> and play in a band. <laughs> you know, it was a kind of very benevolent government back in those days, you know. So I was really happy, you know. And so everyone was signing on and playing punk rock. That's what we did. Yeah, well, absolutely. I suppose because Thatcher got in in 79 and then you had a huge rise in unemployment. So a lot of people were on job seekers allowance and enterprise yeah. allowance schemes, weren't they? So um, yeah. just there was myself. another way around it. You could get like a thousand quid for a year by not doing much if you had a dodgy business plan. Yes, a good dodgy bitch. I think you had to have a thousand pound in your bank account, which was bizarre. Oh, that's right. Yeah, and then yeah. you could just sign on, but you weren't classified as unemployed, so it didn't make the you know the the sort of yeah. the news quite so depressing about what young people are into. But you were obviously on a mission because 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 in, interestingly that there was that post punk period. Well, yeah, post punk period, which had bands like the Nightingales and the Fall and Wire and uh, Gang of Gang of Four. But then you know then out of that you had Simple Minds and you two, and then sort of eighty three the Smiths came along, which was a massive one. So how long did your um, explanaires last for? Uh, well, that we did that for about I think about four years, but it was going nowhere. So I just said I've had you know I've had enough. So I just got drunk for a year, and then. But at our last gig, Chris Reed, who was the singer in the lorries, had seen me play and he asked me if I wanted to join the lorries. And I said, I don't know. I just, you know, want to have, get pissed for a year and have some time off. And then a year later, he asked me again and he said, will you meet me in this pub in Leeds? So I went back to his flat and he said, oh, we've just done a John Peel session. And I thought, this is sounding good. And he said, and we've just done our second single for Red Rhino. And he played it to me. And it was everything that I loved about music. Uh, yeah, it's still a fucking great record. To be honest, Chris was the first person that I'd ever met that could write a song. Because right. everyone, else, everyone else used to jam. And he could sit down with an acoustic guitar and play, you know, four or five chords and sing a melody over it. And I thought, God, he's like Bob Dylan, this bloke. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I've never... So, so Chris was a real songwriter, you know, so we had, we had something to go at. So we just played anywhere and everywhere. Um, was still signed to Red Rhino Records. We did an album and it did really, really well. Really well. Yeah, so um, you, you recorded this in the famous Space Ward Studios, don't you? Which is where Girls at Our Best did Getting Nowhere Fast. So did you have the famous Mike, Mike Kemp? Was he producing that particular one or was it somebody else? No, we did. I think... That were just with a res with a resident engineer at Spacewood. We, yeah. we we didn't have a producer for till about the third album. We didn't really know what they did. But what what is what will always go me? I mean, we were doing okay and um, play it again, Sam. But we're still one of the largest record distributors in Europe now. They took us to on a little tour of Belgium and, and 
you know, we got kissed and everything. And 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 Kenny said, "Oh, so you're doing an album, aren't you?" So I said, "Yeah, yeah, it'll be, you know, it'll be good." And I thought, "Wow, we're actually going to make an LP. I can't believe this." So he said, who would you like to produce it if you could have anybody? And, and straight away I said, Colin Newman from Wire, because we were massive Wire fans. And then we went again, and Kenny said, I've spoken to Colin Newman, and he said he'll produce your album. And I thought, fuck yes. And Chris wouldn't do it. And that, and although it did really, you know, although it did well for an indie album, you know, and it was up there for ages, and it got us round the world for a long time. Um, it'll always irk me that how much better it could have been because Colin Newman wanted to do it, and Chris turned him down because it became about a control thing. So um, it'll always be a massive regret that we didn't let Colin Newman do it. Yes, absolutely. That is annoying, actually, because he was, yeah, he would have been in the business. So during that period, there was obviously, because, you know, obviously the, the indie world of the 80s was pretty huge at this yeah. stage, wasn't there? I mean, you know, yeah. you had you had like the NME who had a huge circulation, yeah. Melody Maker Sounds, John Peel, you know, every yeah. city and every town had a venue which had an indie yeah. night. So you must have felt during this period that the, suddenly the wind was back in your kind of sails and you were sort of kind of on a mission here? Um, well, w w when we did the album, Red Rhino very kindly said, well, look, you can sign off the dole now so we can pay you a small wage. So we thought, fantastic. This is what, you know, we've always wanted to be, musicians and not have to fiddle your dull money anymore <laughs> you know so we kind of got on a wage and we did it properly um and we did an album and you know all the other stuff we had an agent and a manager and and did lots of traveling and lots of recording um and then we ended up actually signing to beggar's banquet you know which 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 was really kind of ironic because right at the beginning 4AD wanted to sign the band and Chris wouldn't do it you know and, and this is kind of how we got friendly with Exmal Deutschland and Beggar's Banquet is because they really really liked the demo that, that the lorries had done but Chris he thought this is giving too much control away to you know, so it, all these things are things that we should have done and we didn't. But did you have Did you have management at that stage, or were you sort of? Yeah, just... we did. Yeah, we had a manager. Yeah. Was he any good? Davey's got a massive heart, a really, really massive heart, and he only ever he only ever did things for love. He would never. I think we left owing him quite a substantial amount of money and he just wrote it off. Right. You know, he, did, he didn't chase us and, you know, and he subsidised the band for years. He, what, he used to be in charge of the fly postering scene in Leeds, which was kind of run by crooks. Yeah, you know the illegal fly postering? Yes, it's it's quite something when you're at an age where you sort of go around a, a town or city with a yeah. sort of, you know, your big paintbrush, yeah. which is kind of, you know, obviously a bucket yeah. of glue and stick up yeah. posters everywhere. Good days. So he, 
he, he was kind of he was in charge of the fly poster in staining Leeds. Nice. And also we were friends with John Keenan who started the punk thing in Leeds. So those two people from Leeds, Dave Hall and John Keenan were I think were the most two important people in Leeds to to be friends with, really. Yes, and obviously Beggar's Banquet, which was kind of part of Situation 2, which was part of Beggar's, they were quite, I mean, I can see why you would have gone into the goth kind of category in a record shop, because yeah. they, they were, their, their stable of bands was all pretty gothy, wasn't it? Yeah, they, re they really really liked us, and, 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 and the band should have signed with them from the beginning instead of messing around with Red Rhino in your... Although yeah. it kind of, although it kind of worked, they didn't have the the profile that 4AD had. You know, the music would have really, really fitted with 4AD. We were yes, they they had the arty. As a fan, 4AD always had that slightly arty sort of quality because for various Just reasons. Amazing, it, it's still an amazing back catalogue with 4AD, the 4AD stuff. Yes. 4AD and Factory have got the best back catalogues by a mile. Yes, that's true, true. Anyway, look, so as the 80s were progressing, it's interesting because because 80, yes, 83 to 87, you know, indie pop was at its height, wasn't it? You know, and that was also yeah. the years of the Smiths. And then yeah. sort of they split up, then ecstasy appears, and then things start to change again. How were you kind of manoeuvring that period? Because obviously you start producing or producing, releasing albums almost every um, year at this stage, because you do paint your wagon, nothing, yeah. and then blow, which you did four albums in a space yeah. of in the space of about five years, which is quite well, good going. Yes. I mean, we just we just kind of toured, and then when we weren't on tour, we did writing. We had a little recording studio. Then we'd send a demo tape to beggars and say, "We've got four new songs. Will you pay for us to go?" And so um, they'd just book us into studios, you know. Um, and it was great, you know. We ended up at the Manor in Oxford, which was Richard Branson's house. And we thought, God, I can't believe it. You know, sort of sleeping in Richard Branson's bedroom. It was absolutely amazing. So we were in the studio, but, you know, Mike Oldfield had done tubular bells. And, and, and you know, you'd, and, and at the time you did have to pinch yourself. God, you used to think, I was just sitting in my bedroom with an acoustic guitar, you know, 15 years ago, not being able to play a chord. And then here we are in the studio where tubular bells were recorded, you know, and, and, and it's free, you know, like someone's paid for us to do this shit, you know. Um, so it was great fun, you know, it was, it was truly great fun. The 80s were great. But, yes. you know, like, like most things, you know, the only certain thing in life is that it will change and it will evolve like a person, like like a virus, like COVID. You know, it will change. Yes, well, because um, well, most bands have that five-year narrative, don't they? They kind of get together, they have a honeymoon period, like you were talking about your marriage kind of um, metaphor. Yeah. And then and then you you sort of do the first album, you know, you have to get yeah. some fans. Well, most people get a John Peel sort of play on their yeah. first single, then a yeah. John Peel session, the album. Things are going well. Then the slight tricky second album, mainly because people have started asking about what's happening with money. 
or you know management or creative direction but mostly people are starting to sort of want to have a few I don't know I suppose it's to do with asking questions isn't it it's like you know how, how does this all work now that we are sort of a band and we're not signing on and stuff like that so often the second album which was in your case Paint Your Wagon um, I mean we have we the, the, the first album, I think, and it's true of most bands, the first album is made up of songs that you've played up and down the country. So they're already written. You know, yes. you've already got enough for an album because you've been playing, and you can play them because you've been doing gigs every week. So the first album is easy. Then when that's done, you think, shit. We've spent so much time on tour that we've got no songs. So how do you do it? So how you do it is you just start jamming again. And it really, really helps if there is a songwriter in the band, which which were Chris. Um, he, is a, he is a proper songwriter, you know. He, he can do it. He's, he doesn't just jam, he writes a song. You know, and so that was the greatest asset that, that we had was his songwriting ability. Yes. And then did you, I mean, obviously from there, you know, you do the second album. Your albums are quite short, aren't they, in length? I, I, yeah, I think, I think one of the reasons is because it's interesting when you were, when you were talking about pop music because um, what we really, really liked was this kind of, a short, sharp blast of like energy, which we kind of thought was what punk was about, and it undoubtedly was. It wasn't like, you know, Aquatarchus or Tales from Topographic Oceans. It was, you know, brevity, energy, a blast, a zap, uh, like the MC5. Um, but what we also discovered later was that. We also had shared a massive love of Tamla Motown and, you know, their songwriting, probably the, you know, the finest pop songs ever made and the best produced pop songs and the best ideas. You know, the Tamla Motown catalogue would put any post-punk catalogue to shame. They are the finest songs, I think, ever. And so we kind of tried to take this thing on board with like having loads of energy, but also loving the, the songwriting skills of like, you know, the Temptations or, you know, or the Supremes because they're undoubtedly brilliantly constructed and produced pop songs. Hmm. So we kind of tried to do both like the pop, the song and the energy. But then that was our kind of, um, uh, manifesto in a way but when did you you know as as you progress then because because you don't break up on the second album which is good you're doing well but then you the third album blow i mean that's that's quite a change in vibe isn't it a sonic uh, well not, nothing wrong with the third album um, uh we did that we kind of wrote it between touring uh, but the last album we actually decided that we we were absolutely sick of using the drum machine. So, and we want, actually wanted to make a rock album with a real drummer that sounded warm and analog and not overthought and, and really, really well recorded. So, um, 
we found an engineer that was sort of sympathetic to this because he'd kind of grown grown up uh, with 70s, the kind of music we like, 70s blues-based rock, uh, and was really, really into things like miking techniques and the purity of sound and nothing digital. So we just kind of wanted something that, uh, and in a way, I think, you know, we thought, well, you know, let's not do a goth thing. Let's let's just do good songs with a real drummer, well played with lots of, you know, that has a, a sonic architecture that still sounds like us, but you know, without um, without doing what we've done before, and 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 and, and it actually got us dropped from Beggar's Banquet. <laughs> <laughs> we spent a year making it, and then Beggar's Banquet dropped us. Um, but I think with hindsight now, people really, really like that album. It's my favourite album. It's definitely not a goth album. Yeah. I think and, it's, it's more something like... I was going to say, because you sort of get a lot more sort of into the songwriting yourself on this, don't you, as well? Are you still there? Yeah. I, was yeah, just, yeah. I was just saying, you're, you're sort of, you're, you're becoming more... Um, involved with the the actual songwriting, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. Well, I I kind of absorbed this through osmosis. You know, I'd watched how Chris did it, and um, so one day I had an idea for a song and and did it by myself. You know, we had an eight track and a drum machine, and I knew how to work it. And then we went into rehearse, and I and I said. I've written a song and I sang it and I played it to him and uh, and the Sisters of Mercy still play it live, so it must be quite a good song. Which one's this? Uh, Gift That Shines. So that was the first song I wrote by myself. Um, and, and someone told me, they said, that Andrew really likes that song that you've written. And I said, oh, fuck off, like, that's bollocks. <laughs> And I said, no, 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 he doesn't. I thought, yeah, whatever, whatever. And then the sisters started playing it live, and I thought, Christ, he really did like that song. So nice? I went to see the sisters, and they played it, and it did bring a tear to my eye. I was going to you know, say, that must have been quite an emotional moment. So then, because at that stage, you know, the ecstasy, ecstasy world had sort of exploded with the dance scene, and then you have the Seattle grunge scene, and then yeah. the, and the 90s suddenly appear. So the 80s obviously start to sort of wane. I, I, I think it, it was an interesting time because things were definitely changing. And... Um, you know, so that I'd done a year with a mission and, and I really threw my guitar in the corner and said, I don't want to do that anymore. So, you know, I bought a sampler and, and an Atari computer and learned how to do sampling at home. Uh, so that's how I got involved in doing MIDI and, and technology and sampling, which is where I'm at now. So did you, uh, did you walk away from the band, you know, the Lorries at that stage? Were you... Well, well you... I... When we got dropped by Beggar's Banquet, there was no money. So I had to go and sign on and I just said, look, I'm, I'm out. We've spent a year doing an album. It's got us dropped. What the fuck do any of us know? We've done something we really believe in and we've ended up back on the door again. 
So I said, oh, you know, I'm off to sign on. So I was signing on again, and then the Mick, who was the drummer in the mission, said, look, we're going on tour. Do you want to play guitar for us? And just come with us, and you pick it up. And so I did, and then Simon left, and then I did that for a year. And then I was really burnt out, and then lived in Glasgow, and sort of spent a year learning how to do sampling and sequencing. Yes. Blimey. And, but, but at that stage, I mean, the Mission were a major band, weren't they? You know, doing they were they, so they, that... they were absolutely, absolutely. But, but in a way, what they kind of, you know, it always felt like they were overreaching. You know, they really, really wanted to go up to the next step of being like the cure or a kind of, you know, third or second level U2. And it seemed feasible, but I think that seemed to be driven more by commerce rather than what the band felt they should actually artistically do. So, so, so when the dance thing happened and Nirvana started, you know, Wayne did a solo album and, and, and I think it's a kind of mishmash of like folk songs or, but that, I think that it was an incredibly confusing time because he, he wasn't a fan of Nirvana or Big Black or Killing Joke, which, you know, would endure any change because the music is so rooted in what the band want to do that there is no way that they will, you know, uh, veer off and do some weird experimental album. They will just carry on doing what they do because that's what they do. And, and Wayne seemed to think, well, I'll do something different now. Didn't want to do grunge, didn't want to do electro. So I think it left him confused about what to do. Because yeah, time did I was going to say, I, and I guess at that stage, he'd been sort of doing music for a, a good 10 years and had sort of hit yeah. some quite high moments. So, and, you know, I suppose there was, you know, people get tired, don't they? I would, I would have thought that being on the road and sort of, you know, the kind of lifestyle of being in a rock band must wear you down slightly and confuse you, as they said about Spinal Tap and Nigel. So, well, the, the, the thing about it, I think at the end of the day, you know, you will put an awful lot of, put up with an awful lot of shit to play to 3,000 people going mad every night. Yes. And um, how did you feel sort of suddenly not having, well, you had the mission period, which must have felt quite enjoyable, but, and, but, and having the audience. But then when you sort of walked away from, you know, the lorries and then stopped with the mission, did you feel kind of an emptiness as well? Um, I just really just wanted a rest from it. You know, I just, I just really wanted to learn about, you know, how to kind of create music by yourself with a sampler and a computer because it meant not relying on people. It meant not being disappointed by people. It meant people not making promises that they couldn't keep. Or, and it was nothing about money. It was purely for fun. Yes. And, you know, I actually ended up back in that back in that place now, which is where I think a lot of musicians are because of the life style. It's not sustainable anymore. 
So what, yeah, so what happens throughout the rest of the 90s then, sort of musically, and, and then sort of up to the current day? Do you sort of, are there other, I mean, did you play in any other bands at that, you know, for those I, I, I just did, I, I, I just did stuff at home, and I think my partner and I bought some houses, and, and we did, we did, we did them up. Um, and, you know, she was doing pretty well, you know, she was a designer, so it was her turn, it was her turn to be in a band, and, yes. I, and I was happy to stay at home and, you know, do some painting, which I found thoroughly relaxing. And when, <laughs> you know. and when, and when sort of like, do you sort of keep in touch with any of the, you know, like the Mission or the Lorries at all? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I mean, the lorries were supposed to be playing at Future Armour next year in Liverpool. Um, but I don't think Chris will do it. Um, I still see Craig, who plays in The Mission, and Simon. Uh, Craig plays in Spear of Destiny, so we've done some shows with them. Um, yeah, they're friends, you know. Um, I see Simon and Debbie from Sheffield, you know, they're very dear friends. Um, uh, so we've grown up together, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of love, you know, we sort of know each other inside out, the good bits and the bad bits, you know. Yes, I guess you would have seen. And um, you mentioned kind of earlier, you know, the Red Rhino experience. Did that sort of, you know, with this as your manager, Dave Hall, did, did you sort of ever sort of have any form of completion with that? kind of relationship with him or did you just all feel a bit embarrassed well not embarrassed well, what, but you know I think what happened was that because he'd subsidized the band for years and years when we signed to Beggar's Banquet it was the first time we had a reasonable amount of money and we said look we want to take control of this and we want to be responsible for paying our wages out of our account and so you know we had a massive fallout and you know in with hindsight dave were right he said look i've subsidized you for years with my cash flow from the postering so now it's only fair that you reciprocate and let me use your cash in my cash flow and i'll still pay you wages so that didn't really stick together so we just said right we go in and then he said well you still owe me thirty thousand pounds and we said, well, we can't pay. So he wrote it off and we're still friends to this day. <laughs> oh, well, at least that's good, you know. Anyway, yeah. so what yeah. are you what so with this kind of interesting period of lockdown and having spoke to quite a lot of musicians like Miles and I suppose during that period, I mean he was quite lucky because he had sort of done a lot of the touring and the album the year before. So he was planning to have 2020 as a sort of a quiet year. Yeah, and hopefully write material for this coming year, which obviously is not really yeah. going to happen. What? How do you find? Have you found the kind of, you know, lockdown and creativity? Um, well, I've been. I'm doing an album with a singer from America, and I'm just in the process of finishing the final song. Um, so it's nearly there, and I've spent a year doing it. It's mostly electronics. Yes. Um, and I met, um, I've done some stuff with a band in America called The Wake, who were playing in England. 
And through the work, I got in touch with someone called Caroline Blind, who had a band in America called Sunshine Blind, who did okay. And I did some guitar playing for her, for her, for her album, which is called The Spell Between. Uh, and then I said to her, look, I'm doing kind of sort of electronic trip hop, you know, I don't, I really need to learn some new skills, you know. Um, and I think something you can do at home by yourself with enough electronics, you don't need pals there, which has been good for COVID. So um, we did a batch of five or six songs and they're finished. And then we're just working on the last four. And uh, so then we'll have enough for an album. Um, and then I, I take those to my friend who lives in Manchester. I don't know whether you know Ding, who Ding plays in the lorries and he runs a studio in Manchester and he, oh, made, yes. he made a lot of records with The Fall and he, he's made records with everybody. But he's, he, technically he's the bass player in the lorries still. So I, between as we kind of exchange all the files, then, you know, I go to Manchester with all the stems and then get Ding to chuck out all the shit and then put a few good bits in and then hopefully it sticks together and we've got an album. So it's nearly there. So that'll be coming out this year. Um, but so in a way, you know, the lockdown has been okay for me because... Um, I just moved moved house at the beginning of it, and I've and I've got a little room where I can do the electronics and uh, carry on writing the songs. And I don't know whether people will like it, but you know we'll like it. it it's definitely not the lorries, and it's not goth music. It's it's you know I always wanted to I always wanted to do something where you know if you're coming from work and you like making your beans on toast or whatever and you want to listen to something just while you're making your tea <laughs> you know without it being without it assaulting your ears like big black or killing jokes something that's kind of cool and has got good beats and good sounds and good songs so it is sort of very electronic um uh, I've always been a massive fan of the Young Gods, you know. Absolutely. Oh right, yes, yes. To, to me, they're, they're, you know, they're they're the guys who know about sequencing and sampling. Um, so I thought, well, maybe I could try and do something like that. So you just get better at it. Yes. So when did you? Just at the beginning, you mentioned that you'd done a. Like a, some recording with Enid. Where, which album and what material was that? God, that was when we did. Um, that was when we did Open Up. It was the first single for Beggar's Banquet. Right. Um, so I think we were there for about a week, and we did three songs, um, um, and we did that with Bill Buchanan, who who did all the Nephilim stuff. Uh, and he'd also done stuff with the Leather Nun, who we really, really liked. The Leather Nun, uh, I thought, a really great band. Leather Nun, yes, that's a band I'd forgotten about, actually. Yeah, yes. so Bill, Bill did most of the Leather Nun stuff as well, so we thought, 
Great, he's you know he's in. He liked the Lebanon, you know. Yes, and and the and so just with the Enid, I'm always curious because they're such a sort of interesting and quirky band. It was really weird. It was really really weird. In what way? I don't really want to say, but it was just a really really strange atmosphere. But like we've. We really, ups- I think they call him Robert, who's, who's the main man. And we just, we just picked up a new amplifier from the railway station, and we were staying in Robert's house. And this, this amp had been delivered to the studio, <laughs> and I think we got a bit stoned and a bit drunk. And you know, you know, I was saying, I'm really, really dying to hear what this amp sounds like. And Chris was saying, well, yeah, we can do it tomorrow. I said, no, no, let's plug it in now. And he was saying, oh, that's a really, really bad idea because everyone's in bed. So we did, and it were really, just turned it on and it were on full and it caused a massive shitstorm. And so anyway, it kind of went downhill from there. And... Um, it was just a really strange setup. It it was just it was just it was just very odd because there seemed to be this I don't know almost like a commune. You know, like when you go to a studio, you know, you generally have like um I don't know, like it seems organised or this was sort of like sharing someone's house and their family there. And, it just felt like you were intruding all the time. It was just really odd. And so we'd upset them by trying this amplifier, and, you know. Yes, tricky. I know, community aspect. You know, I suppose I thought you were going to say cult. It was more like a cult, but more of a community. It was just, it was, yeah, it was just, it was, yeah, it was, it was just odd. I've never been anywhere like it, you know. Yes. And Luke, just last question then. I mean, if you could have said something to a, a 16 or 18-year-old self starting out and with all the experience and wisdom and experience and you've yeah. had, I just wondered if there was anything you would have just said to, to that person that you'd have thought, God, that would have been really useful. Um, I think it would be, don't let anyone tell you that you can't create something of value. Whatever it is, whether it's painting or writing or uh, music, do it, but don't rely on it to be your main income. Do it as a hobby and a passion, but don't mix art and commerce up because when you keep them separate, it's easier. Then you've got two things. Be a plumber, be a plumber and be a painter or be a a gas fitter and play the drums. But don't do one, do both. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, this is true. This is true. Well, look, thank you ever so much for giving me the time for this, Dave. This has been brilliant. Thank you. I hope it's been okay. And that, dear listener, is the end of the interview. A big thank you to uh, Dave Wolfenden, um, who has played as... We probably talked about Red Lorry and Yellow Lorry, just Red Lorry, Yellow Lorry, and also the mission. I think we just spoke about that actually in the interview. Anyway, look, that's uh, the end of the show. 
Thank you ever so much. If you want to contact me, I don't know why, you might want to. Um, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. And also I've been archiving all these interviews for decades, oh, years. Um, and they're all available on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, just do C86 Show. So anyway, that's it. Stay, yes, have a good week. Stay safe. <laughs>